you have to find somebody really dedicated that, that loves what they do. They love uh, the earth. They love um, food, good food and, and the people. Uh, I think he generally likes the people and telling the story about it as much as he enjoys growing the tomatoes. Hey, Ariel. I know you and your husband grew a little garden last year. Have you gotten any plants started yet? Well, we normally like to get something in the ground at this time of year, but... Considering I'm eight months pregnant right now, we've kind of focused our energies on that this year. Well, you've got something more important growing, so I can understand that. (laughs) (laughs) But if you were wondering, the opening clip was from Bobby Murray of the Merrick Inn in Lexington, Kentucky. We've talked before about how homegrown tomatoes taste better than store-bought. And Bobby was talking about someone I met who realized that very same fact for himself half a century ago. Oh, really? Someone who was kind of ahead of this recent trend towards growing heirlooms at home, huh? He absolutely was. He even founded two farmer's markets in Kentucky in the 1970s. But more than anything, he's devoted himself to preserving the genetic and historical heritages of Appalachian tomatoes and beans, having collected and preserved over 1,500 varieties. Wow, that's really incredible. And now, his son is helping to carry on the tradition by cultivating many of the varieties his father has grown for years. They stand in opposition to the trend of multinational seed companies that patent and protect their seed stock by distributing bean and tomato seeds through their website. It's their life's mission, but not without its challenges. Sounds great. I can't wait to hear more about what they're doing. What story can a seed tell? And what would be lost if we fail to maintain the biological heirlooms of past generations? Today we'll meet Bill and Michael Best, a father and son who are doing their best to preserve the seeds of the past. This is Middle of Everywhere. Telling big stories from the small places we call home. I'm Ariel Avery. And I'm Austin Carter. Today, one seed at a time. Bill Best was born in western North Carolina during the Great Depression. And for his family, farming wasn't just a profession, it was a way of life. We were self-sufficient subsistence farm. We grew everything we ate and traded maybe for vanilla or or something like that. Spices, but uh, we grew all of our own fruits and vegetables, uh, animals, uh, and uh, wild animals, squirrels, and a lot of that. One of Bill's earliest memories foreshadowed what his mission would later become. My first memory is picking beans uh, with my mother when I was about two and a half. I would pick the ones on the lower side of the bean vine, which were growing up the corn stalks, while she would pick the ones higher up. And I was captivated by the colors the beans and the colors of the the bean seeds as well. Bill came to Berea, Kentucky in the 1950s for college. Berea is a college town in the hills of Appalachia that has a reputation for being a bit more progressive than the rest of the state. The old brick buildings of the campus are rich with history on a backdrop of rolling hills. 
Bill planned to study agriculture, but his plans changed. I had started to major in agriculture at Berea. I thought I might major in agriculture. And then I realized that uh, agriculture was changing at that time. My father never owned a tractor. We, uh, we just grew what we could with, uh, first with mules. And when they died, uh, he started farming with horses. And uh, in the 50s, uh, agriculture was becoming fairly heavily mechanized and uh, Berea was sort of caught up in that at that time and I decided to not major in agriculture and majored in biology and then added physical education later. I was still very interested in plants. Bill went on to get a master's degree, serve in the army and teach in Tennessee for a year. Then he returned to Berea to teach. When we moved to Kentucky in 1963, another couple and my wife and I had bought a farm in Jackson County, 350-some acres for $38 an acre. Land was pretty cheap back then. Bill immediately set out to grow vegetables and got a new seed catalog and picked out some beans. I was told that uh, a lot of people were growing Blue Lake, which was a, well, it was almost a new bean at that time produced by sea companies, a, a bush bean. I had never seen a bush bean before. We had always grown the cornfield beans, the climbing beans. I let the seed appear, let them become full. It's tradition in the mountains. You want your beans to be full and tender. But I let them full, and they were tougher than work shoe leather, and I had no idea what had happened, and I complained to my fellow gardener, and he was the, um, his job at Berea was to purchase all of the food for the Berea College Food Service, and so he was really up on what was going on in food, and he said, well, better get used to it, because that's going to, the way it's going to be from now on, and uh, I didn't argue with him, I just said to myself, not if I can help it. Agriculture was changing at the hands of big seed companies. And this was a turning point for Bill. November at Thanksgiving, it, we were visiting my family in North Carolina, and I related my experience to my mother and told her I didn't know what had happened. And she said, well, I can solve that problem. And then she gave me the beans that I had grown up with, and I've never looked back. The tough bush beans that Bill had disliked so much were bred to be mechanically harvested, while the older seeds needed to be picked by hand. And just as he always favored the old, unmechanized ways of doing things, he started to grow his family's beans. He also started to grow tomatoes and had an experience which changed his perspective. I had an early crop and I took um, some of them to Lexington, uh, to um, Kentucky Foods. And uh, the guy had looked at it, and he said that uh, he would take all I could bring. He liked the taste of the tomato. And so when I took a whole trunk of my station wagon over to him, and he, uh, he looked at them, and he said, you brought me ripe tomatoes. And I said, well, yes, the ones I, that you like so well were ripe when I brought them. And he said, but I'm, I want green tomatoes. And he said, well, when some of my groceries want some, I'll gas them on the way to the store, and then they'll change color by the time I get there. 
Gassing tomatoes? Is that a common practice? Bill says it is, and it's one of the reasons he says that modern tomatoes lack taste. But the man Bill was selling to couldn't believe Bill didn't know about this practice. And he he called me. He says you're ignorant. And I said yes, yes I am because uh, the tomatoes I brought you were ripe, and that's what what I thought you wanted. And he said, but I'm, I want green tomatoes, and they last longer. And uh, that was my first experience in uh, growing tomatoes for market for.、Uh, For produce markets, that was long before we started the farmers markets. And I, I knew that tomatoes in stores didn't taste very good, and then I realized why. That makes so much sense. So Bill learned a lot about the state of agriculture and produce in those early years of farming, huh? Definitely, and that experience would lead him to find other ways to sell the vegetables he grew. I helped found the Lexington Farmers Market and. Seventy-three, and then started the Berea market myself in seventy-four. Bill's youngest son, Michael, was born in the early seventies, and he recalled his dad's dedication to the farmers' markets. My dad was involved in in starting these markets, and and I, I've got a brother, an older brother, an older sister, and we would、uh, we would be a little upset, I would say, because we'd have to go down to the market. And we'd have a crowd at the beginning, and then it'd die out. And my dad would always tell us, "You can't leave until the market's closed. You got to stay there till five thirty when the market closes, because somebody may come at five o'clock. And if they don't see the market open, they're not coming back." All that work and dedication to the market showed returns, even though it took Michael some time to realize it. It benefited the market. And when you're that young, you don't see what it takes to actually start one of these markets. So Bill and his family were really kind of at the forefront of this whole movement toward local produce and farmers markets. And a lot of it came from Bill's realization that he could sell a product with better flavor and texture if he just had a place to do it. And the farmers markets also began to reap another benefit. I would always have a crowd around me buying things. And then when people would come up, they would usually hand me a, a beans in a pill box. You say, "Try these; you'll like them," and then walk off. So Bill would keep and try those beans, but at first he didn't inquire much about where they came from. It didn't dawn on me early on that I needed to be getting as much because I wasn't I wasn't this cognizant of the importance of the history at that time, but. Shortly thereafter, when I had my first ones that that I tried and found out how good they were, I thought, well, I need to start paying more attention to where they came from and getting the story. What was obvious, though, was that people liked the old seeds that Bill was collecting. The tomatoes and beans were drawing customers back each week for a simple reason. People like heirlooms. They they like flavor. They like. To think that what they're eating is、uh, good for them as well.
Support for Middle of Everywhere comes from Kentucky Humanities. An affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Kentucky Humanities is dedicated to bringing the humanities to classrooms and communities across the state, promoting literacy and civil discourse, building pride in the Commonwealth, and telling all of Kentucky's stories. Learn more at kyhumanities.org. Michael was very young when Bill started the markets in Berea and Lexington. He and his siblings weren't enthusiastic to work them in their youth, but Michael finally had a realization about the real value of that work as a teen. Uh, My dad said, whatever you make at the farmer's market on the last day of the year, you can keep. And I've been making around $200 a day, and this is in early 80s, so that wasn't bad. I was in my awkward phase, uh, 16, 17-year-old boy, uh, selling things and interacting with people wasn't my thing uh, at all. But he told me that. He said, you can keep whatever you make. Well, I loaded up that truck and took it to the, took it to the market, and I sat there until 5.30. I sold everything out of that truck, and I made over $800. So I made four times because he gave me that incentive. (laughs) But from that point on, I did that all the time. I realized, heck, there's a huge difference here that that I could be making uh, for the farm, for the entire farm, not just for my little bank account. Hey, that's pretty forward thinking for a teenager. So was that what made Michael want to go into agriculture? It was. He got his undergraduate and graduate degrees in the field, And all the while, Bill was still growing and collecting more seeds and more stories about them. I think around 2000, we started a seed exchange here. We Sustainable Mountain Agriculture Center where we started growing seeds for sharing, selling mostly on the Internet. Michael helped with the paperwork and such. It was totally his idea uh, as far as an organization that needed to be formed to save seeds for Uh, Just the regular people, the backyard gardeners, you know, maybe some farmers that grow on a commercial scale, but the the people that, you know, have uh, memories of growing up with a specific kind of seed from their family and their community and keeping those seeds going so that they can have a, a resource, a place to find them. As the project and his collection grew, so did Bill's renown and acclaim as a seed saver and preserver of traditions. In 2003, he won the Southern Foodways Alliance's Keeper of the Flame Award. He authored two books about seed saving and preserving the tastes and traditions of the old seeds. And eventually his collection swelled to over 1,500 heirloom beans and numerous heirloom tomatoes. I guess you could just say I'm a a bean nut and my collection goes to show for that too. Wow, 1,500 bean varieties. Imagine trying to fit all those in a grocery store. Bill said Appalachia has an amazing amount of biodiversity, partially thanks to Native American cultivators, but also because beans have a tendency to mutate. Beans are constantly mutating. The same solar radiation that gives me skin cancers that I have to have taken off is quite busy mutating beans. And tomatoes do do too, that... uh, But that's why there are thousands of varieties of beans in existence now. And Monsanto will never be able to control the pollen in the air. That is so fascinating. I never would have imagined that the solar radiation would have affected beans the same way it affects us. So 
Monsanto is one of these big multinational seed companies, right? Yep, and they own patents on certain genetically modified seeds and have litigated over cross-pollination with their seeds. For Bill, seed saving is about maintaining a critical biological principle. Any people of a scientific mind realizes that uh, biodiversity is important. And of course, uh, the seed companies, when we had a world of small seed companies, there was a lot of biodiversity being maintained by those companies. But when we had a, a cannibalization process, whereas smaller seed companies were bought up or maybe merged and then were bought up by the multinational seed companies. Just thousands of um, very valuable varieties were abandoned and no longer grown at all. Just maintaining that biodiversity is very, very important and worth doing if you even don't think in terms of flavor and nutrition and everything that I think about is just the biodiversity itself. That biodiversity is now the subject of great study at Tennessee Technical University in Cookville, Tennessee, where Michael works. His father and mother donated seeds from their collection to be studied there by a plant geneticist. Tennessee Tech has a, a plant geneticist who uh, came to this university about five years ago, and he's actually got the entire collection himself. Uh, my dad and mom, you know, gave him uh, a little bit of every seed they had, and he's grown out uh, those seeds for genetic testing. And so his interest is actually to, to figure out what the diversity is of those seeds, you know, how many different types of beans are there really. Uh, they cluster in certain groups where they're very similar, and so he can kind of tell what seeds do you have to preserve to, to preserve the whole collection. So you don't actually necessarily have to keep up with a thousand different kinds of seeds uh, to preserve the germplasm uh, and the diversity of the collection. So Bill's founding of the farmer's markets and his decision to preserve bean varieties has turned into a full-scale collection worthy of study. But I wonder if Bill and Michael have seen increased interest from the public in the work they're doing in the last couple years. They definitely have. Bill and Michael say in the last 20 years, there's been a huge increase in farmer's markets, local produce, and heirloom seeds. And if it seems like Bill was forward thinking about this growing marketplace, a lot of it just came from his inclination to do things the old way. I just went back to the older ways of doing things because, uh, for one, I, I liked it very much. And then uh, I found that the customers at farmer's markets were very much preferring the heirlooms. And that's still true. I mean, they... They want foods with nutrition and flavor and texture. 
Along with preserving the physical seeds, Bill's real passion is preserving the stories behind them, which he can recount in detail. One example is what they call the Vincent Watts tomato, named after Bill's friend who grew and developed it. He had received a tomato seed from his labor supervisor at Berea College in 56. His labor supervisor was Wilson Evans, and he had um, brought his family seed from Lee County, Virginia, to Berea, and he was growing it, and he asked Vincent if he would take over growing his family tomato, and uh, Vincent said yes, he'd be glad to, and so he, um, he started growing it in his garden, that only that tomato, and he started choosing the best tomatoes for seed each year improving the tomato significantly in both in flavor and texture and in disease resistance. I had visited him the day before he died in Moorhead and I asked him when the um, Evans tomato became the Vincent Watts tomato who wrote in 1980. And Wilson Evans' uh, son contacted me last year. He wanted to get some of the family tomato seeds again, so I sent him some tomato seeds. Most of the seeds are named after the family who maintained them at some point, and some of these stories go back many years. I had a friend in college who unfortunately died just recently, and we did a lot of things together, and he gave me one of my first bean seeds when I was first becoming a collector of them. And his um, ancestor had uh, arrived in the United States just at the time of the Revolutionary War and had fought on the losing side and was ordered at the inn as a prisoner of war to either return home to, uh, to Scotland or move into Western North Carolina, what was then the frontier still. And he chose to move to Western North Carolina. Shortly thereafter, uh, married an Indian woman, one of whose contributions to the marriage was the seeds, the greasy bean seeds that were still still being raised by the Indians, of course. And uh, those beans had stayed in his family all those years. And it's the Fox family being on their website. It's so cool that he can trace the story of that particular seed back so far. I know, it really is. And he knows that history for many of the seeds in his collection, which includes some of his family's beans, like his mother's, the Margaret Best Bean, and his aunt's, the Bertie Best Bean. But that idea of preserving family seeds and reviving something that's at risk of being lost is a huge motivator for Bill. It's like history is is important to me. It's like... uh, history is always written by the winners. I'm I'm more interested in the true history of something being preserved. And that's what I've tried to do is is when people have sent seeds to me, I always request for them as much as possible to tell me how it came to be. Michael says other really great things have happened, too, as a result of their work. You know, it's amazing the connections that you make with people uh, when you have uh, just a website that sells 
these seeds, you know, it, it's amazing the, the emails you get and the, the text messages that you get of people telling you about their fond memories of growing up eating these kinds of beans and how happy they are that somebody's keeping them alive. A whole new generation of home gardeners, small farmers, and chefs are discovering Bill's beans. We had Sean Brock, who's a chef down in Nashville, come out the about two months ago, and he went through the freezer and picked one of every variety we had uh, for sale, and, and we had 165 when he got done. Uh, we counted up what he had, and, and we had 165 that we've got Restaurants have been serving Bill's tomatoes for years. Bobby Murray with the Merrick Inn in Lexington, Kentucky, first met Bill 30 years ago through his father, who bought Bill's red tomatoes. It's just a love and an art form for him. You know, the tomatoes evolved. My dad really bought red tomatoes from him, and they were very good. And then Mr. Best, I believe, got into, he also grew all these heirlooms. And uh, the heirloom tomatoes, you know, are thinner-skinned, Definitely, some are acidic, some are sweet, and uh, and they're all they're always beautiful. You know, they just make an excellent plate for us, a presentation. And Bobby says it's hard to find people who are as dedicated as Bill. You know, to leave it as as God intended it, and and is is just something uh, that's hard to find anymore. And very few people or farmers do that. You have to find somebody really dedicated that, that loves what they do. They love uh, the earth. They love um, food, good food and, and the people. Uh, I think he generally likes the people and telling the story about it as much as he enjoys growing the tomatoes. Some small and mid-sized seed companies also stock varieties of Bill's beans, and he says mostly he's flattered. But there's one aspect that he takes issue with. When they give their own definition and of a seed and when it's incorrect, then I will contact them and let them know. They don't respect the, uh, the stories behind the seeds. People have uh, changed the history of, of some of uh, my tomato seeds and uh, I've complained about that too, but that's about all I can do is, is complain. They're entrepreneurs and they're not really seed savers. And so I, I do object to that. Bill and Michael see these seeds as a communal property and history that must be preserved for reasons besides profit. But the coronavirus pandemic has actually resulted in more interest than ever in their seeds. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I've heard that some seed companies are running short because there's so many people that want to plant their gardens this year. This past year, uh, we had a movement, you know, back towards gardening uh, we could tell in the the amounts of orders that we had it was unbelievable uh, and you know the number of beans that we sold out of that in a normal year we would not have sold out of those beans. Bill says this new interest in growing food could be beneficial for everyone. It may bring bring about a revolution in uh, in agriculture a more decentralized thing I hope we can't let the multinational corporations control the world's food supply. We've got to go back to um, small, small growers, many of them collectively, uh, be a part of the market.
I love this idea of all of us growing our own gardens and using these heirloom seeds that could lead to a revolution in agriculture. I can just see it now, a whole new economy based on seed trading and cultivating that comes from the people's own backyards. And that it could preserve a certain part of history as well. Me too. And it's through this unique dedication of people like Bill and Michael that these seeds and stories have been saved. Michael has established himself in his own right, but takes pride in carrying on his father's legacy and says that to many people, he'll always be known for one thing. It makes you feel good uh, when, you know, you can actually say that uh, your, your father, you know, had a big impact on a movement in, in the country, really. Like I said, it's, he's well known all over the place. Uh, and I'm basically, I'm Bill Best kid. I've always been that. Uh, I'm Bill Best son. And uh, that's, uh, that's, like I said, the way I grew up and I'm still that way. And I'm, I'm fine with that. That doesn't bother me at all. And Bill, at 85 years old, takes a measured but optimistic perspective about the future of seed saving. I'm beginning to get pretty enthused about some of the younger people. That was one of my problems early on. One of my fears early on was that uh, when the older people died out, there wouldn't be any young people to come along and and, uh, promote it. I just have a a gut feeling that... uh, that things are going to improve in the seed saving thing. I think we, we're going to become less dependent on multinationals. I'm uh, cautiously optimistic, I guess you would say, in terms of what's happening right now. Yeah, knowing more about what's at stake in terms of preserving these seeds, like maintaining the biodiversity, It makes Bill and Michael's work seem like this essential part of the whole food industry that's never really acknowledged. But I feel like I'm maybe breathing a little easier, knowing that people like them are out there, preserving our genetic variety one seed at a time. You can find out more about Bill and Michael's work and the Sustainable Mountain Agriculture Center at their website, heirlooms.org. You can also visit us at middleofeverywherepod.org. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter so you'll always be the first to know about exciting updates and new episodes. This episode of Middle of Everywhere was produced by me, Austin Carter, with editorial help from my co-host, Ariel Lavery. Our editor is Naomi Starvin. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Time on the String Sound Studio in Paducah, Kentucky. Other scoring was from APM Music. Marketing and sponsorship support comes from Dixie Lynn. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Middle of Everywhere Pod. Middle of Everywhere is a production of WKMS and PRX. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private organization funded by the American people.